The scripture reading will be from Revelations, the septic second chapter, verses 18 through 29. It's Revelations, second chapter, verses 18 through 29. And to the angels of the church in Thyatira write, These things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual morality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I give her time to repent of her sexual immortality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as you do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depth of Satan, as they say, I will put you, I will put you with no other burden. But hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him will I give him power over the nation. He shall rule them with a rod of a rod of iron. They shall be dashed into pieces like the potter's vessel, as I have, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Brother Eddie. If you are to believe many of the very vocal people in our nation today and in many media circles, and I don't necessarily recommend that, But if you do believe a lot of what you hear today, the most virtuous quality that anybody could possibly possess is the quality of tolerance. We hear that word a lot today. And most of the time when we hear it, we hear it in in the context of what pretty much amounts to the existence and continued proliferation of immorality in our culture. And whenever voices are raised in opposition to immoral actions, oftentimes the cry in response is, well, you're just intolerant. And they mean by that, for that to be a bad thing. We're told that we just need to tolerate Basically, whatever it is that people want to do with their lives, however they want to live them, even if they live their lives in ways that 
at least up until now, have been considered immoral, we need to stop condemning that and be tolerant of those things. And in contrast to that, or the opposite side of the same principle, is that what is deserving, in our culture anyway, of the severest condemnation is intolerance. And so when you don't tolerate immoral behavior, you are guilty of the worst, the most heinous crime in our culture today, of being intolerant. Well, there were some folks in the church at Thyatira who would have fit in well in modern American culture because they were very tolerant. They were tolerant of a woman described in this passage as Jezebel. But the interesting thing about that is that even though they would have been probably applauded in our culture, the only opinion that ultimately matters is the opinion of Jesus, who actually condemned those Christians for being tolerant of her. We're studying the seven churches of Asia, from Revelation chapters 2 and 3. We're just walking ourselves through those two chapters, taking it a congregation at a time, kind of supplement our Sunday morning uh, Bible class and the adult classes in which we're studying the book of Revelation uh, in total. And so tonight we've come to the church in Thyatira, and let's just take a few minutes to address some of the lessons that we learn from this particular letter. And first of all, let's consider this point. Jesus deserves our respect. And that involves and includes respecting His authority the authority that he has over his church. His church generally and broadly, and his authority over each congregation that helps to make up his church. And Jesus begins this letter to Thyatira by reminding him that he has that authority. And so he begins by saying, To John, instructing John to write these words to these congregations, he says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God. Now, he's going to say more about himself uh, in, in the words that follow, but let's stop there for just a moment and make sure we recognize what that implies. To be the Son of God implies His authority. It implies his equality with God. As a matter of fact, when he claimed in his earthly walk that he was the Son of God, in John chapter 5, his contemporaries knew exactly what he meant by that. Because the Bible says in John 5 verse 18 that they, speaking of his enemies, they sought all the more to apprehend him, to take him to put him to death because he not only broke the Sabbath. Now, that that was their assessment. He didn't really break the Sabbath. He never sinned, but that was their assessment. They felt like he was worthy of death because in their minds he broke the Sabbath. But here's the point for our purposes tonight. And, John 5, 18, he called himself, 
here, or he called God his own father, making himself equal with God. When Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, or when he claimed that God was his father, he was claiming something that was different from everybody else. In one sense, we are all children of God in that we are, we exist because of His creative power, ultimately. And so we all bear a resemblance to God. We all bear His image. And Christians are children of God in a very special sense, distinct, obviously, from the world. But when Jesus claimed his kinship with God and his relationship with God, he was claiming something even more specific than that. And his contemporaries understood exactly what he meant by that. And so they said in John 5.18, this is one of the reasons why they wanted to take him and kill him, because he claimed that God was his own father, implying in a different way than everybody else. And by claiming what he claimed, he was making himself equal with God. That's John 5.18. So when Jesus comes to the church in Thyatira and He says, the words of the Son of God, He is implying His rank, if you'll allow me to use that term, it's not the best term. He's implying His authority, His equality with His Father. And so His words need to be taken very Seriously, And so we must respect Him as the Son of God. But He continues, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. Again, this takes us back to chapter 1. We've mentioned this in the earlier letters. That Jesus and His description of Himself in these seven letters usually draws back to part of the description of Him that we find in chapter 1. This is the case, chapter 1, verse 14. Eyes like a flame of fire. Now remember in Revelation you deal a lot with figurative language. And so what John saw often represented or was intended to represent other things. And so when it says that Jesus was one that had eyes like a flame of fire, there are a couple of possibilities there as to what that was intended to convey. Perhaps it was intended to convey the idea of anger. You ever use the the phrase that uh, somebody you, that you were so mad you saw red? We've talked about in, in our class on Sunday mornings how oftentimes we use colors and numbers and things like that in a figurative way. Well, that's one way that we that we use the color red to, to signify anger. He was he was he was red faced. That has a literal connection because a lot of times when people get angry they they flush. So his eyes being like a flame of fire, perhaps a reference to his anger at their tolerance of wickedness as he he viewed their tolerance of that Jezebel lady. Perhaps the eyes like a flame of fire carry the idea of of penetrating vision, that he's able to pierce uh, with his insight into that congregation and into the hearts of its members. And so he deserves our respect because he's the Son of God and because of His ability to see us as we truly are. And feet, He's described further, verse 18. Feet that are like brass or burnished bronze. Again, chapter 1, verse 15 has that that, uh, description. Feet that are described in chapter 1, verse 15, like this burnished bronze or brass, like they had been refined in a fire. 
This, this precious metal comes out of the fire glowing, able to tread underfoot any enemy and reduce it to ashes. And so the church should respect the authority of Jesus, they should respect the insight of Jesus, and they should respect the power of Jesus. All of those things involved in these descriptions of who Jesus is. And that's how he introduces himself to the church in Thyatira. Point two. Jesus commends what's commendable. Again, we see this with each congregation, practically, for the most part. That Jesus will say something positive about them. And the church at Thyatira, though they were tolerating wickedness, they were not all bad. They had some good qualities. And Jesus describes them in verse number 19. He says, I know your works. And one of the things about their works was that their last works were more than their first. They were now more active than they had been previously. What's interesting about that in the context of these letters is how opposite that is to the church in Ephesus. In chapter 2, verse 5, Jesus said to them, you need, Ephesus, to repent and do the works that you did at first. Ephesus needed to go back and recapture what they once had. The church in Thyatira was now doing better as far as their activities were concerned than they were when they started. And Jesus commends that. He says, I know your love. That's our word agape, the strongest term for love in the Greek language. Selfless service, seeking the good of others. I know your service, which would be a natural consequence of their love. I know your faith, your trustworthiness, your loyalty. There were areas of their lives that that were characterized by loyalty and faithfulness. And he commended that. And I know your patience, your patient endurance. This is the word for endurance in the face of pressure. We oftentimes use the word stubborn. And when we use the word stubborn, we pretty much use it only in a negative sense. When we talk about somebody being stubborn. If you could use the word stubborn in a good way, use the word stubborn in a positive sense, that's this word. When it comes to facing difficulties and trials, Jesus said about this church, you are stubborn. You are stubborn in the face of difficulty. You endure. You stay with it. You don't give up. And so all of those things are commendable qualities. and Those are things that every congregation of God's people should desire to have. And each individual should desire to have. So Jesus introduces Himself commands respect as He should. He commends their good traits. But then in the third place, we learn that tolerance of sin is not commendable. Jesus commends what is commendable, but tolerating sin is not one of them. In verses 20 through 23, we read about what Jesus has against them. I have this against you, he begins, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Who was this Jezebel? Well, without going into a a lot of people have offered all kinds of conjecture about that. In a nutshell, 
I think this is probably a real literal woman. But I don't think that Jezebel was her real literal name. That's my assessment of that. It seems from his description of what this woman does that she would have to be a, a real literal person in the congregation who is enticing people and, and um, encouraging them to be involved in, in false worship and immoral actions and things like that. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. So the way he describes what this woman does seems very natural to conclude that it's an actual person in the congregation who is wielding a negative influence. But was her name really Jezebel? I, I tend to doubt that. Because of the nature of the, of the book, it's, it's, it's a figurative book and, and uses a lot of symbols and things like that. And Jezebel would be a perfect name to attach to someone who's involved in the things that this woman evidently was. And so I think she's called Jezebel uh, figuratively. But I think she probably was a real person. Well, what about her? Well, she called herself a prophetess, uh, Jesus says, there in verse number 20. When in reality, she was not. Because if she were a genuine prophetess, if she was actually receiving messages from God to be relayed to others, then those messages would not include the things that she was teaching people to do, which was to violate God's moral Law And so she wasn't a real prophetess, but she was claiming to be and was convincing others to commit sin by evidently appealing to those alleged prophetic abilities. Why else would she call herself a prophetess unless she was trying to get people to believe that what she was teaching them was coming from God? And so she claimed prophetic abilities, but she was encouraging people to do things that were in violation of God's will. Does that sound familiar? Ever turn on your television or go to different websites and see people who claim to have prophetic abilities, claim to be speaking for God, claim that God is speaking through them, and yet when you hear what they talk about, they're encouraging people to do things that the Bible doesn't even support. Well, that was essentially what she was doing. But Jesus gets more specific and talks about specifically what she was teaching. She was teaching and seducing my servants, verse 20, to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So she was teaching Christians, claiming to be a prophetess, claiming to be speaking on God's behalf, and was telling people that they should engage in fornication, in sexual sin, and in pagan idolatry. So she was telling people to compromise in those areas and do those things and was claiming that God was the one who was really instructing them to do it. Now, do we know anything more about what this may have involved? Let me offer you something just for your consideration. Remember, the only time that Thyatira is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture is in Acts chapter 16. In the New Testament. Verse 14, where we're introduced to Lydia, who was, remember, a seller of purple goods. And she was from Thyatira at the time that we are introduced to her. She's in Philippi when Paul arrives there. But this, this reference to her being a seller of purple goods and being from Thyatira is interesting from, uh, 
from, from a historical perspective. Because in the city of Thyatira, it was uh, a, a part of that city's culture for a lot of trade guilds to exist. In other words, people that were involved in, in various uh, businesses, and that included a lot of um, uh, you know, textiles type things, and, and, and they had a lot of uh, color, you know, dye colors and things like that, and so that fits with what we know of, of Lydia. Well, all those, all those businesses existed, and in Thyatira you had these trade guilds where a lot of these businesses would band together whether they were woodworkers or leather workers or dyers or things like that, and, and they would band together to create these guilds to promote business. Historians tell us about that uh, with regard to Thyatira. But the interesting thing about that, as you read further, these, these trade guilds were also connected to various false gods. And so to, to help promote business, these trade guilds would appeal to these false gods to help them in their businesses. And so if you were going to belong to one of these guilds, business would be, first of all, much better if you did. But if you belonged to one of those, you had to pay homage to the guild's God and attend feasts. Uh, make sacrifices, offer worship to the God that was connected to your particular area of work. And sometimes that worship included very immoral things that would happen. So all of those things would be associated a lot of times with these trade guilds. And we learned that from historical records about Thyatira. Does that help us understand perhaps what this Jezebel in Thyatira was teaching? Perhaps. I'll leave that to you for your further study and, and consideration. But it may very well have been that she was trying to bring about this, area, this, this compromise in this particular area to teach people that God actually wants you to be involved in this kind of thing. That it's okay, that God's okay with it. And so if you want to boost your business and be involved in this false worship, eating these things, sacrifice to idols, engaging in immorality, whatever it is, she was enticing people by appealing to God to involve themselves in those kinds of sinful actions. She had convinced some Christians to participate, that God wanted them to participate. And so the issue was compromise. This Jezebel was teaching it. This Jezebel was convincing Christians to compromise areas of righteousness and truth for perhaps material gain. Some today, unfortunately, some Christians, give ground and compromise when it comes to business. Unfortunately, some will be dishonest and compromise their honesty and justify it in some capacity. Some will compromise in worship. Some will compromise with regard to marriage. Some will compromise in, in, in all kinds of areas. And we have to watch and guard against that. Guard against that temptation. That's what this Jezebel was doing. And so the church, by and large, was tolerating it. They were letting her do it. They weren't opposing her. And Jesus said, I have that against you. 
they were being tolerant of something that they should not have tolerated. And so Jesus goes on and He says, I have, I have given her time to repent. Verse 21, but she refuses to do so. And so her time had run out. He goes on to say that I will throw her onto a sickbed, a bed of affliction. And those that commit adultery with her, I'll throw into great tribulation. Unless they repent of her works, I'll strike her children dead. I think children there probably used not in a literal sense, but her children in in following after her teaching. Her converts, in other words. You know, the Bible uses that terminology sometimes in a positive way. Paul would refer to Timothy as his son, his son in the faith, because of the part he played in his conversion. I think that's probably who these children of Jezebel are in this text. Not her literal kids, but her converts. And so they were going to suffer too. And then the result would be, verse 23, and all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Now that leads to the obvious question, well, what was He going to do? When Jesus said, I'm going to throw her into a sickbed, her converts are going to suffer, And as a result of what I'm going to do, all the churches are going to know that I am the one who searches the heart and understands and knows what's going on. What was Jesus going to do that would become known to all the churches? I'll give you the definitive answer. I have no idea. I I, I really don't. I don't know what specifically He had in mind when He said that this is going to happen, and as a result, all of the congregations are going to know that nothing escapes His watchful eye. I don't know what that punishment is going to be. But, even if we don't know what specifically it was, we know this. Jesus was very serious. And He was going to do something that was going to make His watchful eye something that was very well known among the churches His churches, His people. Now here's the overall point. They were being tolerant of this immoral person who was not only immoral herself, but was teaching and convincing others to live lives of immorality. And Jesus said, you ought not be tolerating that. Because I don't tolerate it. And then lesson four. Jesus offers some encouragement to the faithful. Verses 24 through 29. So... He commended what was commendable. But He said, I have this against you and you need to deal with that. And then as He does with the other letters, He encourages those who are faithful. And He said to the faithful, an interesting thing, end of verse 24, to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, those that are faithful, He said, I'm not going to place on you any other burden. Just hang on. Hold fast, stay the course. What's interesting to me about that is that that's opposite of what he told the church in Smyrna earlier in the chapter. When he said to Smyrna, more persecution is coming. You're going to face persecution. Satan is going to throw many of you into prison. You'll have tribulation. Get ready. 
But to the church in Thyatira, he said, For you faithful, I'll not place on you another burden. One of the things that that teaches us is that the Lord knows what we can handle and what we can't. And He will not allow anything to be placed upon us that is more than we can handle. He's promised us that, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. He is faithful. And so Thyatira would not face the same exact thing that Smyrna faced. But they were to hold fast and stay the course. What about us now? So we bring this to a close. You know, in a very real sense, all of us are being offered the same thing that this Jezebel was offered. Time. Jesus said, I gave her time to repent. God's giving us time too. And so let's not mistake God's patience for indifference. Peter said some would do that. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, when he said, in, in the latter days, scoffers will come saying, where's the promise of His coming? All things continue now as they have since the beginning of the world. They thought that God's patience, which is what Peter said that was, God's long-suffering toward us, that's why, he's, that's why the Lord hasn't returned yet. They thought that God's patience was indifference. That God doesn't care. He's not involved. He's not doing anything. He's not going to do anything. Peter said, don't make that mistake. But rather, he says later in 2 Peter 3 verse 15, but consider the patience of God as salvation. In what sense? Because God in His patience is giving us opportunity to turn from our sins. He's giving us opportunity to be saved. And so in that sense, the patience of God is not indifference, it's salvation. It's an opportunity to get things right. But don't be like Jezebel and pass up your opportunity. Jesus gave her time. She didn't do anything with it. Don't waste your time to turn from whatever sin may be in your life. Give it to the Lord so that He can forgive it. And take it from your spiritual account. If you need to respond tonight as one who's not yet a child of God and you need to obey the gospel, we encourage you to obey it tonight. If you're already a Christian and you need the prayers of your Christian family, then let us know what your need is and we'll pray with you. We invite you to come as we stand and sing together.